Well, those of you that were here last week um, may remember that we started talking about the book of Hebrews. And in my introduction, I talked about how the clarity of hindsight is so helpful for us as we have our walk in Christianity, this Christian faith of ours. I used the, the analogy of the movie that came out about 25 years ago called The Sixth Sense, where you see the ending of the movie, the first go around, and you are absolutely blown away, but it causes you the second time you watch the movie to be aware of how your own built-in biases and, and perceptions of how things should be led you to the wrong conclusion. It's only when you have the ending that you can then see all of the events that took place with total clarity and not just partial clarity. And I use that analogy because the Bible is in many ways a very similar scenario. It has to do with the fact that it was written over a 1,500-year span of time by multiple different authors, all being guided by the Holy Spirit, and how what one writer sees and being prompted by the Holy Spirit to write may have one meaning to the writer, but a different meaning to the true author of Scripture, God himself. They're not totally different. They work together. But it's only through the playing out of the timeline that we actually see that happen. That's why for us as Christian theologians, we look at the Old Testament as really just a way of pointing to Jesus. For those who are in the Jewish faith, for whom they don't adhere to a New Testament, what you have in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, is really a history of the formation of a nation. It's a revelation of the true nature of man, a demonstration of the true nature of God, man's rebellion, God's mercy, grace, and faithfulness. And there's also all of these hints dropped throughout many prophetic voices about this foretold Messiah to come, the one who's promised, hints about when he'll be born, where he'll be born, how he'll live, how he'll die. His life revealed in the Old Testament. As Christians, we look back on that book as having already been fulfilled. Jews look at it a little bit differently. They're wondering if the promised Messiah is still to come. As a result, they look at the events of the Old Testament differently than we do because we see the ending fulfilled. And then we look back on the details and see how they were filled. Psalms is a wonderful collection of, of writings where we see that happen, where oftentimes David, as the psalm author, will be meaning one thing, and it will be an accurate meaning. But there is a secondary fulfillment of what is said. Psalm 8 is one of those places. Now to set up where we're going with this, most of us are aware that the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, declares, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of all things. It is a profound historical fact. 
For those of you that like logic, it is also a logical necessity because if you don't have anything, you get nothing. There's a simple Latin phrase, ex nihilo nihil fit, out of nothing, nothing comes because nothing cannot give birth to something. And so if ever there is something, there always had to be something. Or as my favorite theologian, R.C. Sproul, used to say, if there was ever a time where there was truly nothing, we could never get something. It is a logical necessity that the creator God is an eternal being who exists and brings all things to being. But understanding that also deepens our worship. Because you may remember one of the most faithful men in Scripture is this guy named Job who is giving God all glory, honor, and praise, even in the midst of personal tragedy. But as the tragic circumstances heap upon him and his friends are no help at all, he loses sight of who God truly is. But it's only when God comes and presents himself before Job and reminds him of his awesome, far-reaching power as creator that Job comes to his senses and realizes that a God who can form the earth is in control of everything on the earth. And that even in the midst of suffering and pain, God's still in control. And he may have a greater purpose for it than we can imagine while we are down and out. Understanding God as the creator helps us to understand him more deeply in worship. But here's the funny thing about God as the creator. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 makes it clear that even though God made everything, he saw fit to make man as ruler over it. He gave mankind dominion over his creation. Everything that grows, everything that walks, everything that swims, everything that flies, God put under man's authority in Genesis chapter 1. Now, for those of you who are pretty good, Genesis chapter 1, if you know your math, chapter 1 comes before chapter 3. And chapter 3 is where things go from very good to falling apart. Because in chapter 3, there is sin. Sin enters. And one of the consequences of sin is that which came easily before this creation that was under man's dominion now is going to get hard. God says, man, because of you, cursed will be the ground. And it's going to bring forth, forth thorns and thistles, and it's going to take the sweat of your brow to make it do anything. Because of man's sin, the earth is rebelling against man because man rebelled against God. Dominion doesn't mean what it was meant to mean because man introduced a sinful heart, a rebellious spirit. So, with that as our background, pointing out that indeed God was intending for man to have dominion over the earth. When we read the opening verses of Psalm 8, we see that David, as author, is reflecting on this wonderful notion that God did indeed make man have dominion over all. And I can see him just... One starry night, up on a rooftop, 
low humidity, clear sky, gazing up into the heavens and seeing the vast expanse of the stars, seeing the Milky Way revealed in a way that can only be revealed when there is no light pollution and no air pollution, and you're just gazing up on it. You see the moon, and all of a sudden you become aware of how insignificant man is to be in the vastness of space. And yet in that insignificance, God yet made us significant by giving us dominion over the earth. It's this wonderful way of properly understanding who we are in relationship to God and what he has made. David captures that in Psalm 8. And so it would be for the first 400 years or so of Jewish readers of what David has penned, they would indeed understand that it was about man's dominion over God's creation. A thousand years after David writes that, a man named Jesus walks the earth. This prophet, this great teacher, this miracle worker. And he had a favorite nickname for himself, the Son of Man. Kind of amazing that it wasn't the Son of God. He likes the Son of Man. Now, it, you can look at that one of two ways. You can look at it from a humility perspective because he is indeed born of a woman, 100% man, when he's on the earth. So it is correct for him to think of himself as Son of Man. But there's this other angle to it as well. Daniel chapter 7 in one of his prophetic writings, I want to read to you what Daniel wrote. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 400 years before Daniel wrote this, David penned Psalm 8 and spoke of dominion and spoke of the Son of Man. That would have meant one thing to the readers for 400 years. But then Daniel pens this. And now the phrase Son of Man that is featured in Psalm 8 takes on a much bolder meaning. There is no doubt that this now has a messianic connotation to it, that this is about the one whose dominion will be everlasting, not man's dominion, which is fleeting. And so now the readers of Psalm 8 have to fold in the working of the Holy Spirit through Daniel's writing about the Son of Man. And their understanding of this now becomes something with messianic implications. There's one coming, the Son of Man, whose dominion will be everlasting over everything. And so they keep this in their hearts. 600 years later, here comes Jesus. Jesus lives, dies, and is raised from the dead. Ascends into heaven. And then all of a sudden, we have yet another opportunity to properly understand 
what is proclaimed in Psalm 8. We see in it, as Anne read earlier, the fulfillment is this man, Jesus. Jesus the Christ. And what it reveals to us as we get into the rest of Hebrews chapter 2 is that this was part of God's plan all along. Verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 2 says this, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, as an aside, that doesn't mean that Jesus had to die in order to be perfect. It really means that it was the completion of a plan, the perfection of the plan that required Christ's death on the cross. That was the perfecting moment of the plan of salvation, first seen in Genesis chapter 3, where God promised there would be one that would crush the head of the serpent. He goes on and says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And so there was a plan all along, one that was proclaimed by the prophets, but not fully understood. Because many of the details were only to come in the future, lacking at the time they were originally declared, allowing for the possibility of misconstruing some of what was said. So yes, God put man in a lofty place in creation. And yes, the son of man is the one who would have everlasting dominion and not simply some generic form of mankind but one particular name, one particular person. But the one item, the one critical thing that got people really off the mark on this was they didn't understand the victory that was required for man to enjoy God's reign in the future. As I mentioned last week, oftentimes what got misconstrued by those who will not affirm Jesus as the Messiah, is their expectation that the Messiah is going to bring peace on earth by leading God's people out from underneath the oppressive hand of those who would harm them and keep them captive. That's what Moses did. And the Messiah was meant to be a prophet like Moses. And so there was this expectation of relieving people from oppression. That is exactly what Jesus does, but it's not from a human oppressor. You see, what Jesus knew, what God's plan was all along, was to free us from the greatest oppressor that exists, our sin. God doesn't want us to have peace on earth and goodwill with all man. God wants us to have peace with him. Our sin is rebellion against him. Our sin puts us in legion with Satan, not with God. Our sin requires death as punishment. God knows 
that if we all are left to our own account, we won't be rejoicing with him in heaven. So in order for us to be free of the true oppressor, there must be a sacrifice. There must be atoning blood shed on the cross. Jesus Christ, who will bring about peace with him, not necessarily the rest of the world. And so we continue reading in Hebrews chapter 2, and we see verse 14 that says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Now just, that might be a little startling to you all, that God who is sovereign, who has dominion over everything, would say that Satan has the power of death. Well, certainly the wages of sin is death. Satan and death and sin all go together. But be mindful that it was Jesus himself who said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's death and then there's the second death. Jesus controls them both. And free those who live their lives who were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helped, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, and he is able to, take, to help those who were being tempted. It was the plan. The plan was there all along. We could only be saved by one who truly understood what our lives are like, what it's like to walk on this earth, what it's like to face the oppressor, to face temptation, to face sin, and yet be sinless, to be flesh and blood and be able to die and not succumb to that, and understand what it meant for Jesus to take on flesh and blood, to become incarnate, to be born of Mary, to walk on this earth. He knew what it was like to have parents, a mother and an earthly father who cared for him. Understand this too. We don't see Joseph later on in the stories. And that really only means one thing. Jesus knows what it's like to lose his earthly father and experience that pain. Jesus had many younger brothers. They did not think that he was the great promised Messiah. And they taunted him. And they gave him a hard time the way only siblings can do. Jesus knew what it was like to hunger. He knew what it was like to thirst. He knew what it was like to not have a place to lay down his head, not knowing where he was going to be sleeping. Jesus knew what it was like to be despised and rejected, to be adored at one moment, and to be attempted to be stoned the next. Jesus knew what it was like to be arrested, to be falsely accused and convicted. Jesus knew what it was like to feel the sting of the whip, the tearing of his flesh. He knew what it was like to feel the searing pain of thorns being pressed down into his skull, the blunt but burning pain of fists pounding his face and body. <clears throat> 
He knew what it was like to have nails piercing his hands and his feet. He knew what it was like to struggle for that last breath, to die. Because Jesus became man, we have a Savior who has suffered the greatest of suffering. And understand this. While he was going through all of that final pain, all of that final moments of that passion of his death, at any moment, Jesus could have cried out to a legion of angels and said, get down here, kill them all, and nurse me back to health. But he stayed silent. Because for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't do that. God didn't allow Jesus to be liberated from the cross because he knew it was the only way that we might be able to stand before him as if we had not sinned. Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the more we understand what Jesus went through, the more that makes sense. For there to be any other way to God after Christ had to go through that is a thought I don't want to really undertake. I would say horrible things about the nature of God if he would allow his only son to suffer like that and still say, oh, by the way, you can come to me this way instead. It's Jesus or it's nothing. 3,000 years ago when David penned those words in Psalm 8, you could claim to have ignorance about who the Messiah might be. 2,600 years ago when Daniel writes his prophetic words in chapter 7, you still might be excused from not knowing the identity of the Messiah, but now you know without a doubt there is one coming. 2,000 years ago, your ability to feign ignorance was removed. Our author of Hebrews identifies in our reading for today that that one who will have everlasting dominion is Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Scripture tells us that there will come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that day, there will be two types of people. There will be those who for the very first time are kneeling before Jesus and acknowledging him as Lord. And on that day, Jesus will say, you denied me as Lord while you were alive. I will deny you my presence in your death. But there will be another group, another group who will come before Jesus. They will kneel and he will say, rise, brothers and sisters. For you have been washed clean by my blood. Your sin stands hidden behind the cross and I recognize you and I know you by name. Come, you submitted me, submitted to me in life. Now enjoy me everlasting in my kingdom. Those are the only two outcomes. And it really is that simple. 
There is one who has everlasting dominion. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God. If you take your knee today, he'll tell you to rise when you meet him again. Amen? Amen. Let us pray.